I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. This episode involves discussions about child abuse and suicide. Please take care before listening. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. In the spring of 1985, 78-year-old grandmother and retired Bible study teacher Ruth Pelkey was found brutally stabbed in her Gary, Indiana home. For years leading up to the tragedy, her family had tried to convince her to move out of a neighborhood that had grown increasingly unsafe. But this was her home. The elderly white woman, who chose to see the best in everyone, believed her religious faith would keep her out of harm's way. Ruth's case wasn't difficult to solve yet it remains one of the most historically controversial. It involves prevalent social issues like juvenile incarceration, capital punishment, and racial bias. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me in exploring the reasons Ruth Pelkey's case made international headlines and how it remains relevant nearly 40 years later. This case takes us to Gary, Indiana, which sits on the southern shore of Lake Michigan. The city is known for its steel production, which significantly boosted the Midwest's industrial economy. During the Great Migration, millions of Black people relocated from southern states to Gary and nearby Chicago in search of work opportunities. 
With this mass migration came white flight, the relocation of white residents when a minority population moves into cities. The city of Gary flourished from the 1930s to the 1960s when U.S. Steel dominated the industrial market. Following World War II, manufacturing competitors created a bust that made workers scatter to more prosperous cities. Steel mill closures left many impoverished and the city became a shell of its former self. Racial segregation and income disparities led to the development of predominantly white and largely black or Mexican neighborhoods. According to the 2000 U.S. Census in the 1990s and early 2000s, Gary's population was 84% black, the highest percentage of any U.S. city with 100,000 or more citizens. Gary even boasted the first black mayor elected in a city of its size. Yet appearances can be deceiving, and despite political optics saying otherwise, an undercurrent of racism has plagued the city. According to the Evansville Press, Glen Park had been Ruth Pelkey's neighborhood for more than four decades. She watched it transform from an affluent suburb to a racially mixed area with more incidents of crime and widespread economic strife. Still, Ruth maintained deep ties to the area. She was widely known as the neighborhood grandmother. Sadly, Ruth's nurturing nature made her a vulnerable target. Ruth Elizabeth Zimmerman was born on May 18, 1906, to parents David and Estella. She was born in the small town of Peru in southeastern Indiana. Ruth was the oldest of three children. She had a brother, Russell, and a sister named Edna. Ruth was raised in a devout Baptist household, and her family attended church regularly. The importance of responsibility and hard work was instilled in all three children. They helped out with manual labor on the family farm and did neighbor's chores after they'd given birth, gotten injured, or grew elderly. In the early 1940s, Estella was diagnosed with leukemia. When her health deteriorated, Ruth remained by her mother's side and continued working on the farm. Life in the country suited Ruth, and she was more than happy to show her city-dwelling cousins the ropes during their summer visits. Ruth's religious faith contributed to her strong work ethic and remained a substantial part of her identity throughout her adult life. She relied heavily on prayer to get through the grief of her mother's death in 1942. A year earlier, Ruth's second cousin, Dorothy, also died from leukemia. She and her husband, Oscar, had two children, Bob and Ruthie, who occasionally helped Ruth on the farm. After a year of grieving his late wife, Oscar began dating Ruth. Their relationship moved fast and before long, marriage was on the table. Before accepting Oscar's proposal, Ruth insisted on making sure his children approved. They had no reason to protest. The children had known Ruth from a young age and she was good to their father. Ruth and Oscar married in March of 1944. It was Ruth's first and only marriage. Though she would never have biological children, Ruth happily took in Oscar's kids as her own. 
They settled into a modestly sized single-family home in Gary's bustling Glen Park neighborhood. Ruth loved children. She was a lifelong youth advocate who took every opportunity to make a positive impact. Her approach to mentoring children was strongly rooted in Bible study. She believed the Bible's teachings would lay out a moral path for young developing minds. For 40 years, Ruth volunteered in Lake County's Child Evangelism Fellowship Program. Once a week after school, she toted her flannel board with felt Bible characters to teach inner-city children under the age of eight. It was gratifying work for Ruth to connect future generations to the Bible's message. As the years passed, Oscar and Ruth watched their neighborhood gradually decline. Businesses were boarded up, abandoned houses littered most blocks, and violent crime was on the rise. Crime arrived at their own doorstep during a series of area burglaries in the early 1980s. It was frightening at the time, but possessions could always be replaced. Home invasions in the area continued after Oscar died of unknown causes in 1983. Ruth found herself living alone in a derelict area during her senior years. Her stepson Robert and his wife begged Ruth to move somewhere safer. But Ruth was stubborn. She insisted her neighbors looked out for her and that there was nothing to worry about. Many of Ruth's neighbors had known her for decades. Others were new to Gary and brought children with them, who Ruth was more than happy to take under her wing. As reported by the Evansville Press, Ruth had opened her home to neighborhood children since she moved to Gary. She was known for recounting Bible stories and moral themes to groups playing outside. Some would wander to her yard, and Ruth rewarded them with candy if they quoted scripture to her correctly. Adults in the community knew Ruth for her incredibly kind heart. She was an avid churchgoer. For years, she attended services three times a week and sang in the choir. When church members fell ill, she'd check in on them and bring over meals. Ruth Pelkey lived right across the road from a teenaged black girl named April Beverly. Ruth had taught Bible study to April when she was a wide-eyed elementary student, but at age 15, it was clear she had journeyed down a bad path. Ruth knew that April's childhood had not been easy. For a while after April's mother passed away, Ruth made it a point to check in on April and her siblings. She stepped in as a surrogate grandmother. For weeks, she brought over enormous trays of food so the kids wouldn't go hungry. April's father quickly remarried and started a new separate family. As a teen, April split her time between her father's house and her sister's apartment, depending on her mood. With little adult supervision and guidance, April started acting up at school. By the time she was a sophomore, she'd bounced between four or five schools. One school had kicked her out for beating up another student. In May of 1985, April was also seven months pregnant. She wasn't the only pregnant teen at her school though. Karen Corder, another sophomore at Lou Wallace High School, had become a mother two years earlier. Somehow, Karen had kept the pregnancy a secret from her family. 
eventually giving birth on a school toilet. When the news broke, her parents reluctantly let her raise the baby in their home. Karen Corder's best friend was Paula Cooper. She never wanted to talk about it, but Paula may have had the most challenging upbringing out of all her friends. I always have to make multiple trips back and forth to the car lugging heavy detergent jugs because I can't carry my groceries and a huge plastic jug all in one trip. It may sound like a first world problem, but the more I think about it, I realize it's actually a problem for our planet. 91% of these plastic jugs end up in landfills and oceans, harming our planet and marine life. Even so, it's not like I can just stop doing laundry for my whole family. So I switched to Earth Breeze, and I'm so glad I did. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look like dryer sheets, but they're so much more. These game-changing liquidless sheets dissolve in any wash cycle, hot or cold. No need to measure out liquid detergent, no mess, and best of all, no more lugging around those clunky plastic jugs. Just toss the sheet into the washer and you're good to go. Earth Breeze has completely revolutionized the laundry game. Their packaging is lightweight, biodegradable, and totally plastic-free, so you can feel good about your impact on the planet. Plus, these eco-sheets are perfect for all laundry lifestyles, even for those with sensitive skin, thanks to their hypoallergenic and dermatologist-tested formula. EarthBreeze eco-sheets are compatible with HE washers, gray water systems, and they're septic safe, so you can have a clean conscience and a clean wardrobe. Another bonus is you don't even have to leave your house. Earth Breeze delivers right to your door with carbon neutral shipping on a frequency that fits your lifestyle. Earth Breeze offers flexible subscriptions that you can adjust, pause, or cancel anytime with no pesky contracts or fees to worry about. I was skeptical about how well these eco sheets would work, but I quickly found out that Earth Breeze is a stain fighting, odor busting powerhouse that has my family's clothes looking and smelling fresh every time. And you don't have to compromise on quality in order to be eco-conscious. With Earth Breeze, you can have your cake and eat it too. And with Earth Breeze's risk-free 100% satisfaction guarantee, you can test it risk-free. If for some reason you're not totally satisfied, Earth Breeze will give you a full refund without any questions asked, and you don't even have to return the product. It's a win-win, so why not give it a shot? Switch from the old-fashioned goo to something new. Right now, my listeners can subscribe to Earth Breeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash murderish to get started. That's earthbreeze.com slash murderish for 40% off. earthbreeze.com slash murderish. Paula R. Cooper was born on August 25, 1969, in Chicago, Illinois, where her mother Gloria was raised. Right after high school, Gloria learned she was pregnant. Her boyfriend, Ron Williams, aimed to do the right thing by proposing. She said yes, but they were on a crash course. Ron called off the wedding after noticing red flags that Gloria was mentally unstable. Ready or not, 
baby Rhonda came into the world. Every so often, Ron would visit his daughter in the house his ex-fiance now shared with another man. But everyone referred to him as Uncle Ron, so Gloria's new husband, Herman Cooper, wouldn't suspect anything. And that's how Rhonda knew her biological father, as her uncle. Three years later, Rhonda's half-sister Paula was born. As children, the girls got along famously, even though their personalities were very different. Rhonda was disciplined, orderly, and assertive, while Paula was soft-spoken and easygoing. When the girls were in elementary school, the family moved into a cramped, yellow three-bedroom house in Marshalltown on the outskirts of Gary. Marshalltown had once been the definitive dividing line between Gary's white and black communities. From the 1950s onward, the neighborhood had been occupied by mostly black working-class families. By the late 1970s, when the Coopers arrived, more and more businesses sat abandoned. Due to white flight, there was more money to be made out in the suburbs. Herman and Gloria Cooper made a modest living. He found occasional work as a mechanic in Gary, but Gloria was the breadwinner. She worked long hours as a lab technician at Methodist Hospital, leaving her little time for child rearing. Because of this, Rhonda didn't really get a chance to enjoy her childhood. At eight years old, she was expected to bathe and dress Paula, then make them both breakfast before they headed to school. In the afternoons, it was Rhonda's job to make sure she and Paula finished their homework before cooking them both dinner. It was a lot for a little girl to handle, but it felt natural to be her sister's protector. Herman Cooper was impossibly strict with the girls when he was around. He refused to let them have any friends over, and they also weren't allowed to go to anyone else's house. So the sisters thought up games they could play with other children from far away. That way, they didn't disobey Herman's rule about staying on the porch and risk physical discipline. Rhonda did her best to shelter Paula from Herman's rage. Gloria and Herman both struggled with alcoholism and they were both passionately emotional people. The combination of alcohol and bitterness was like cranking up the volume on a radio full blast. Their arguments always crescendoed into violent assaults on each other. It was a terrifying thing for young children to witness. Their arguments frequently ended with one of them walking out. The couple would separate for a few days and then get back together. The same pattern was on repeat. It was during one of their breakups that Gloria put her young daughters through an unthinkable trauma. It was 1979, Rhonda was 12 and Paula was nine. After a particularly vicious fight with Herman, Gloria ordered the girls to get into her car. In a sealed garage, she started the engine and then waited for all three of them to die from carbon monoxide poisoning. In Gloria's mind, it was the ultimate revenge against Herman. According to the book, Journey of Hope, the girls quickly lost consciousness. Rhonda awoke first, lying beside Paula on their bottom bunk bed. In a panic, she called her aunt to explain the emergency. 
while also telling her sister to alert their neighbor, Mr. Hollis. With Gloria nowhere to be found, Mr. Hollis checked the garage. He found Gloria in the car trying to follow through with a suicide attempt. As Rhonda and Paula stood on the front lawn, watching in shock, Mr. Hollis dragged Gloria out of the car and administered CPR. A nurse in the neighborhood took over so Mr. Hollis could call an ambulance before he ushered the girls inside. Gloria was taken to a local hospital, but the sisters were never examined. Afterward, Rhonda and Paula's aunt took the girls in for a week, but Gloria discharged herself early and brought the girls back home. Their home lives continued just as it always had, a familiar tension hanging in the heavy air. After that, things at home seemed to get worse. If either of the girls did something Herman disliked, they faced his wrath. At one point, Herman found out that Rhonda was not his biological daughter and she turned into his main target. Sometimes the girls were punished together. According to the Evening Express, on multiple occasions, Herman forced the girls to strip naked before whipping them with electrical cords. He didn't want their clothing to protect them. Paula and Rhonda constantly ran away from home to escape the beatings. The first time Paula ran away, she was just 12 years old. Over a three-year span, both girls followed the same pattern. They'd run away, end up with foster parents or in youth shelters, and then be forced to return to their parents. They told authorities several times about Herman's physical abuse, and every time, the system failed them. No one did anything. At age 14, Rhonda decided to leave for good and moved in with her biological father, Uncle Ron. She felt terrible leaving Paula, but she was out of options. Left to fend for herself, Paula became Herman's new punching bag. It's no coincidence that around that time, Paula began getting in trouble at school. For a long stretch of time, Paula had to walk on eggshells at home. Eventually, Gloria hit her limit with Herman and filed for divorce. Less than a year later, Gloria moved to Georgia, essentially abandoning her daughters. It hurt like hell to Paula, but she'd become pretty good at internalizing it. At 15, Paula had developed a thick skin from years in a volatile household. She didn't trust easily, but was more likely to trust a friend of a friend than a complete stranger. And Karen Corder could vouch for April Beverly. Paula met April for the first time on a day that would change their lives forever. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It was lunchtime on May 14, 1985, when Paula, Karen, and April decided to leave school. April invited a freshman, 14-year-old Denise Thomas, to tag along. 
Together, the group of girls walked 10 blocks to the Candyland Arcade, where they pooled their money to play games and buy some candy. The fun at the arcade didn't last long. They discussed their next plan of action and decided to head over to where April was living at the time, her sister's house. The girls enjoyed the freedom, sitting out on the porch and gossiping the way most teens do. Inside, April discovered a bottle of budget wine, Wild Irish Rose. They busted it open and not long after, there was an eruption of laughter. At some point, they smoked a little weed. Then, out of nowhere, one of the girls announced they needed to figure out how to get more money. Paula then put her hands in the pocket of her crisp white denim jacket. Her thumb grazed a slip of paper, triggering her memory. That morning, her mom handed her a prescription to refill her birth control pills, paper clipped to a note giving her permission to leave school early. Paula made a mental note to stop at the pharmacy later so her mom wouldn't find out that she skipped school to get drunk and high with her friends. Then, April announced an idea. They could easily snag some money from an elderly lady across the street. April knew Ruth Pelkey's house well. The layout burned into her mind from all the times she was taken inside for Bible study. April told her friends she was pretty sure Mrs. Pelkey kept a jar full of $2 bills. If not, she also knew there was jewelry inside that had to be worth something. And April knew just how to be invited inside. She explained to her friends that she would need to stay behind and hide for the plan to work in case Mrs. Pelkey recognized her. At around 3 p.m., Paula, Denise, and Karen approached the walkway to Ruth Pelkey's door. They knocked and were greeted by Ruth, who bore resemblance to a stereotypical librarian. Ruth peered over her cat-eye-shaped glasses, a tight smile grazing her lips. As sweet as can be, one of the girls told Ruth she was sorry to bother her, but her auntie was looking for Bible study classes. By this point, Ruth was two years retired, though she couldn't seem to pull away entirely. According to the Indianapolis Star, she continued to be a hostess for the fellowship's equivalent of a summer Bible camp called the Five Day Club. Ruth explained to the three teenagers that she didn't teach anymore, but she knew someone who did. She asked the girls to come back in a few days when she'd have more information. As Ruth closed the door, the girls walked away dejected. April's plan didn't work. They all gathered again on the porch as April insisted they try again. This time, they decided that flashing a weapon to scare the old woman into complying would be the best plan. According to the Evansville Press, that's when Paula grabbed a butcher knife with a 12-inch blade from the kitchen, wrapped it in her jacket, and headed back toward Ruth Pelkey's house. If I could communicate with my dogs, I'd ask them how they're feeling, why they insist on napping right in front of the refrigerator door, and I'd tell them how much they mean to me. Unfortunately, I can't really do this, so it can be tough to know when something's off until it's too late. While doggy texting may not be a thing yet, fingers crossed for the future, 
Maeve has come up with the next best thing, a raw food diet that can boost your pup's digestive health, overall well-being, and lifespan. Who needs words when you can show your love through nutritious, wholesome meals? My dogs, Shadow and Clipper, are family. Naturally, I want the best for them. They are such good boys, but sometimes they can be a little picky. Although I was excited to switch their food to Maeve, I was also a little concerned about how these two picky eaters would react. But let me tell you, they love Maeve. They lick their bowls clean before running off to play with each other. Traditional kibble and even fresh foods just don't cut it when it comes to meeting dogs' nutritional needs. Canines thrive on a high-protein, low-carb diet that is minimally processed, and that's where Maeve comes in. Maeve is a raw food option that provides all the convenience of kibble while delivering an impressive array of health benefits. Not only does it contain a hefty dose of protein, but it's also specially supplemented to promote seven crucial areas of your dog's health, including gut health, immune function, oral hygiene, skin and coat health, hip and joint health, mental health and anxiety, and growth and early development. And you can actually see the difference in your furry friend. From fresher breath and reduced itching to regular bowel movements and a healthy weight, Maeve supports a range of benefits that'll make your pup feel and look better in just 28 days or less. Say goodbye to bland kibble and hello to a happier, healthier dog with Maeve. I love that there's no mess, no prep, and no thawing needed with Maeve. I just open, pour, and serve. It's as simple as that. Not many can say they get to indulge in their favorite meals every single day. But with Maeve, dogs can enjoy delicious, nutrient-packed meals without any fuss. Don't just take my word for it. Over a thousand five-star reviews speak for themselves. Both dog owners and their furry friends love Maeve and it's particularly popular with picky eaters. Make the switch to raw today. Right now, Maeve is offering $40 off your first order at meetmave.com slash murderish. Go to meetmave.com slash murderish. That's spelled M-E-E-T-M-A-E-V to receive $40 off your first order. That's meetmave.com slash murderish. About 24 hours later, Ruth's stepson, Robert, began to worry. He called her several times the previous afternoon and the next morning on May 15th. Every call went unanswered. It was mid-afternoon by the time Robert used his spare key to enter his stepmother's home. That's when he encountered the worst sight a loved one could fathom. Ruth lying motionless on the dining room floor. The long, jagged slashes across her face and body left her nearly unrecognizable. This wasn't a murder, it was a massacre. Badly shaken, Robert called 911 to report that his stepmother had been killed. When first responders arrived, they were struck by the brutality of the killing. As Lake County investigators assessed the scene, a few details stood out. There were no signs of forced entry, so odds were good that Ruth knew her attacker. The house was ransacked, suggesting this may have been a robbery gone wrong, and Ruth's car was gone. Lake County detectives didn't have a hard time connecting Paula Cooper to the crime scene. Her white denim jacket 
was found draped over the arm of the victim's couch. The birth control prescription with Paula's name and address remained in the pocket. Also, keep in mind, these were teenage girls who made it their business to gossip. With four co-conspirators, odds were high that one of them would have trouble keeping the crime a secret. Sure enough, one of the girls bragged about the crime at school. Word spreads fast in a small town like Gary, and right away, investigators had two reasons to bring the girls in for an interview. Early in the investigation, Paula was deemed ringleader of the murder robbery. Detectives learned she was the one who inflicted most of Ruth's injuries, but Karen definitely participated in the stabbing. Through a series of interviews with all four girls, investigators established events of that afternoon. As detailed by the Evansville Press, the second time Paula knocked on Ruth's door, she concealed a butcher knife and wrench in her jacket. She insisted that Ruth give her specific information about her Bible study contact. With Ruth's back turned to her, Paula seized the opportunity to grab a vase from a table and hit the elderly woman over the head. Ruth fell to the floor as blood poured down her face. As reported by the Evansville Press, Paula told detectives, it was like a red rush of blood came from her head and I stood there and looked at her and then it was like shocking and something clicked into me. And so I grabbed the knife and I cut the lady. She didn't just cut her though, she tormented her with the blade. Paula sliced Ruth's legs and arms, piercing into her stomach and chest. While this was going on, April stood watch before joining Denise in ransacking the house for any valuables. Paula grew weary, eventually handing the knife over to Karen. Karen later confessed to wiggling the knife in the victim's chest before thrusting it deep through her back, scuffing the hardwood floor beneath Ruth. According to USA Today, when asked why she participated in the stabbing, Karen replied to see how it would feel. According to the Evansville Press, Paula told detectives she was haunted by two things that Ruth said before succumbing to her wounds. In the middle of the brutal attack, Ruth said, if you do this, you'll regret it. Later, she recited the Lord's Prayer before succumbing to her injuries. An autopsy revealed that Ruth Pelkey had been stabbed 33 times. According to the Calgary Herald, she was stabbed 20 times in the back from head to waist and 13 times at the front of her body from her cheek to just below her left knee. The senselessness of the crime came into focus when detectives learned what the perpetrators left with, roughly $10 in cash and Ruth's 1976 Plymouth. Paula, Karen, April, and Denise were all arrested on May 16, 1985. Their fingerprints were all over the crime scene. All four teenagers faced murder charges, but it was Paula who was the state's primary scapegoat. Her age when the crime occurred was treated as irrelevant. The murder charge made her eligible for capital punishment. At the time, Indiana state law allowed prosecutors to seek the death penalty for those as young as 10 years old. In fact, 
In the 1980s, the United States was one of only four countries in the world that executed criminals who committed a crime while under the age of 18, according to the San Francisco Examiner. At 15 years old, the situation was likely very confusing for Paula. She grappled with the consequences that were unfolding, telling the San Francisco Examiner that in those early days behind bars, I thought they were gonna take me outside and kill me. Paula Cooper couldn't afford a lawyer, so she was assigned a public defender. Kevin Relford advised her to plead guilty in order to avoid a jury trial. He told her this was her best chance at avoiding a death sentence. The death penalty was also on the table for Karen Corder. She was 16 years old, making her the oldest of the girls and eligible to be tried as an adult. Initial reports that four juveniles had been arrested for murder left the community reeling. Gary residents were equally disturbed over what had happened to the victim and the age of the perpetrators. The fact that a white woman had been killed by four black teenagers in a setting where racism was overtly prevalent made this case even more polarizing. Paula Cooper's neighbor, Rayora Hollis, commented about her to the Evansville Press saying, she was always such a nice little girl. I don't know what could have gotten into her to make her change so. Maybe Paula was beyond help. At least that's what psychologist Frank P. Brono concluded after an assessment. Paula had been raised in an unstable home where she faced extensive trauma. This had resulted in a major personality disorder and a strong tendency to be aggressive, hostile, and vindictive, as reported by the Baltimore Sun. The public defender hoped Paula's background would be considered a mitigating factor by the judge. One after another, each teenager entered guilty pleas. On December 4, 1985, Denise Thomas was convicted of felony murder and sentenced to 35 years in prison. Karen Corder evaded the death penalty and was sentenced to 60 years in prison after pleading guilty to murder in March of 1986. On April 21st, Paula Cooper appeared before Lake County Judge James Kimbrough. As quoted by the Baltimore Sun, before pleading guilty to murder, she told the judge, I have remorse. What can I do? I can't explain what happened. I can't just sit here and say I'm sorry. Sorry isn't good enough for me, and sorry isn't good enough for you. Months passed while Paula Cooper awaited sentencing. In the meantime, her co-conspirator, April Beverly, acted in her own self-interest. As reported by USA Today, she turned state's witness, fully cooperating with police and prosecutors. Her testimony only reinforced the idea that Paula was the mastermind of Ruth Pelkey's murder. In exchange for her cooperation, April was sentenced to 25 years on robbery charges. It was clear Paula Cooper was in line to take the biggest fall out of all the girls. In a jailhouse interview with the Times, Paula said, I think one of the misconceptions is that I was some ringleader of this big murder. That's not true. What I want people to know is that all four of us were guilty and that's the bottom line. There was no innocent person in that house. 
Paula's sentencing hearing was held on July 11, 1986. Before announcing the punishment for her crime, Bob Pelkey, Ruth's stepson, read a statement. According to the Calgary Herald, he begged the judge for a death sentence, saying, No one, I repeat, no one, has the right to touch me or any of my family without paying the penalty. The judge then launched into a long diatribe about being against the death penalty. Regardless, he handed down Paula's sentence. She would be executed by electric chair. This decision made her the youngest death row inmate in the country at the time. Prosecutor James McNew agreed with the outcome, confident that execution was the only suitable punishment. He said to the Calgary Herald about the sentence, I suppose it was because of the condition of the victim. That, coupled with the torture we know she went through, is what makes it, for me, as heinous a crime as I've ever been involved in. But if prosecutors thought this was the last they'd hear of Paula Cooper, they were in for a rude awakening. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. I recently learned about OneSkin, a skincare brand that is all about anti-aging science and research. OneSkin was founded by a team of four female scientists with PhDs in longevity. With over 15 years of experience, these ladies were determined not only to minimize visible signs of skin aging, but also to tackle the root causes head on. Picture this, a must-have face moisturizer that extends skin health on a molecular level, a firming topical eye supplement, and a topical body supplement that addresses aging from within and keeps your skin moisturized. And OneSkin's products don't just make your skin look healthier and younger. They actually make it function like it's fresh out of the fountain of youth. OneSkin's secret sauce lies in their OS01 peptide. It's the star of the show in their products and it works wonders in helping your skin resist both internal and external aging factors. Their flagship product, OS01 Face, has been clinically proven to strengthen your skin's barrier and improve important markers of skin health. Translation, signs of aging will be significantly reduced. Anyone who knows me knows that I geek out over skincare, so I'm extremely excited to try OneSkin's OS01 because it's formulated for areas of your skin that are most exposed to environmental damage, including your face, hands, and neck, the places on our bodies that tend to show the most signs of aging. Although I already have a solid skincare routine, I'm always looking to improve and enhance it. My favorite thing about OneSkin is that it's made by an actual longevity scientist, not just another skincare brand trying to hop on the latest anti-aging trends to make a quick buck. And I was truly blown away by their remarkable achievements. Using their advanced in-house R&D platform, OneSkin conducted extensive lab experiments to assess the effectiveness of age-reversing compounds. Through staining skin samples and meticulously analyzing the genetic data, OneSkin scientists made a groundbreaking discovery. The OS01 peptide has the incredible ability to actually reverse the biological age of the skin. In fact, their studies revealed a remarkable reduction of up to 50% in the number of senescent cells meaning your skin will appear less aged. 
OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. OneSkin addresses skin health at the molecular level, targeting the root causes of aging so skin behaves, feels, and appears younger. It's time to get started with your new face, eye, and body routine at a discounted rate today. Get 15% off with the code MURDERISH at oneskin.co. That's 15% off at oneskin.co with code MURDERISH. We only have one body, one skin, and only you can choose to make it better. Age healthy with one skin. When news broke that the 16-year-old was sentenced to death, there was a major shift in public focus. Those previously appalled by the gruesome murder of an elderly woman suddenly grew outraged that someone as young as Paula Cooper could be executed. It's important to understand the cultural climate at the time. According to the Department of Justice, between 1983 and 1986, the Supreme Court rejected requests to rule on the constitutionality of five different death penalty cases involving juvenile defendants. It wasn't until 1988 that the court ruled it was considered cruel and unusual punishment to execute offenders under the age of 16 when the crime was committed. It would be 17 more years until the minimum age for execution was raised to 18 on a national level in 2005. People all over the country were up in arms that a 16-year-old could be sentenced to die. Paula Cooper's case began attracting international interest, especially in countries like Germany, England, Austria, Australia, and Italy, where capital punishment is not practiced. In Europe, Italy was the loudest voice of public outrage. According to the Calgary Herald, entire classes of Italian schoolchildren rallied together to sign a petition totaling 40,000 signatures. Then-Governor Robert Orr received this petition and over 300 letters. More letters and petitions signed by death penalty opponents flooded into the UN and the Indiana Supreme Court. Many people acknowledged Paula should be held accountable for her actions, but believed her sentence should be commuted to a lengthy prison term. Killing her felt like hypocrisy to many. Lake County Public Defender Bill Duchette began the appeal process right after Paula's sentencing hearing, knowing full well he needed help to make any headway in such a politicized case. He reached out to Monica Foster, who'd been working for the Indiana Public Defender's Council since 1983, and she specialized in death penalty appeals. Foster met with Paula Cooper a year into her stay at the Indiana Women's Prison. Her first impression was that this was a terrified young girl who didn't grasp the full impact of her actions. She immediately felt protective of her, like an older sister. She later told the San Francisco Examiner, I look at someone like Paula and think no one ever cared about her. She's always been abused. And if I can make a difference in her life, that's important to me. If we're really interested in stopping violent crime, we should look at why this happens to kids like Paula Cooper. She certainly needs to be punished for her crime, but killing her solves nothing. 
Surprisingly, Bill Pelkey, Ruth's grandson, agreed. Unlike the rest of his family, he was firmly against Paula Cooper's execution and told her so in a series of letters that began soon after her incarceration. The 39-year-old crane operator at Bethlehem Steel quickly became one of the most outspoken opponents of juvenile executions. News outlets latched onto Bill's story, which was a tale of forgiveness and altered perception. He admitted to reporters that initially the worst possible punishment seemed appropriate for what Paula had done to his grandmother. But like Ruth, he was a deeply religious person and emerged from prayer with surprising compassion. In a frequently quoted interview with the News and Observer, Bill spoke of his change of heart by saying, After my grandmother was murdered, I could not remember the way my grandmother looked. All I could think of was the way she looked after she was found dead, when she'd basically been butchered, just chopped into meat. All of a sudden, I could see her face again, but there were tears streaming down her cheeks, just like they had been streaming down Paula's grandfather's face. I believe they were tears of compassion for Paula and her family. He continued, I took this to mean I should speak out against her death penalty. This was a very brutal murder, and I don't want to see Paula Cooper go free, but I don't want to see her die for it. For Bill Pelkey, his newfound compassion meant fighting for Paula's execution not to be carried out by speaking with the news media and Governor Orr. Bill also founded the organization Journey of Hope, which brings together murder victims' families to speak publicly about alternatives to the death penalty. With the state of Indiana's laws about juvenile executions under heavy scrutiny, Amnesty International became involved. The organization campaigned for a commutation of Paula's sentence, garnering over two million signatures on a petition that landed in the governor's office. Even the Vatican expressed its indignation. According to USA Today, in September of 1987, Jack Crawford, lead prosecutor on Paula's case, was visited by an Italian emissary to convey Pope John Paul II's condemnation of her sentence. An appeal from the Pope himself was also sent to Governor Orr. Under such unrelenting pressure and continuous criticism, in 1989, Indiana legislators raised the minimum age for capital punishment from 10 to 16. In the July 1989 appeal, Cooper v. State, Paula's lawyer, William Touchette, asked for the new law to apply retroactively. After all, Paula had been 15 years old when the crime was committed. If the state went forward with the execution, it would make her the last person in Indiana to be executed for a crime committed under the age of 16. According to court records, before reaching a judgment, Supreme Court Justice Randall Shepard said, this is a difficult conclusion to reach because of the gruesome nature of Cooper's acts. After examining the case, the death penalty was ruled unconstitutional due to Paula's age. Her sentence was commuted to the maximum prison term for murder under Indiana law, 60 years. This meant that most of Paula's life would be spent behind bars. 
USA Today reported that Paula struggled immensely when she was moved to general population in prison. In 1995, an assault on a prison guard landed her in solitary confinement for three years. By 2001, Paula had been cited 23 times for rule violations that included unruly conduct, sexual contact, and being in an unauthorized area, according to DOC records. In 2003, she was granted a transfer from state prison to the Rockville Correctional Facility. Paula took advantage of programming there to better herself, earning a GED and a bachelor's degree while training dogs to be companions for disabled veterans. As the years passed, she also worked as a culinary arts tutor to her fellow inmates and manufactured metal parts for state prisons and private partners. With a new sense of purpose, Paula Cooper grew as a person. She gained a reputation at Rockville for her kindness and looking out for those newly incarcerated. After Paula's sentence had been commuted, Bill Pelkey was able to visit her in prison. Years of exchanging letters had fostered a unique friendship. He believed in her and the ability for young offenders to be rehabilitated. Bill shared with CNN what he'd learned about Paula, saying, she would take it back in a heartbeat if she could, but she knows she has to live with it for the rest of her life. She knows she took something valuable out of society. She wants to try to give back. She wants to help work with other young people to avoid the pitfalls that she fell into. She wants to try to give back to society. In 2003, Bill released the book, Journey of Hope, from Violence to Healing, which detailed his path to forgiveness from a religious perspective. His book exemplified how a tragedy can be transformed into an opportunity for change. Bill Pelkey's friendship, along with her supporters far and wide, helped Paula believe in her future. Maybe there was life for her beyond prison walls, one of redemption. Paula's sense of hope was reflected in her behavior making her eligible for early release. According to Indiana Public Media, state law allows offenders to earn one day off of their sentence for each day served with good behavior. Out of her 60-year sentence, Paula served 26 years before qualifying for release. Paula Cooper's case once again made headlines as her release date approached. In 2012, she told The Times, Seven, eight years ago, I wouldn't say I was ready to go home. And I wouldn't tell anybody that because that was a lie. My time is coming and, you know, I just hope that people give me a chance out there. That's it, because people do change. Paula's sister, Rhonda, at that point married and with a family of her own, hoped the world would treat Paula kindly when she was set free. She told USA Today, she was just a child at the time that happened. And now she is an adult and people should wait and see and give her a chance. Give her an opportunity. Maybe she'll do some wonderful things for children who are growing up and aren't so fortunate like she was. On June 17, 2013, Paula was escorted through a back entrance of Rockville Prison. Dozens of news cameras waited in the parking lot to interview the 43-year-old who dominated headlines on and off for years. She was brought to an undisclosed location, intent on acclimating to post-prison life, 
by dodging the shadows cast by her crime. According to The Intercept, her first few months of release were spent working at the burger chain Five Guys. A manager there prioritized offering employment to former felons, which gave Paula a foot in the door. She eventually became a manager herself. Paula knew her experiences were valuable to at-risk youth and their advocates. She began working as a legal assistant to her former attorney, Monica Foster. The two women paired up to do speaking engagements at colleges, with Paula speaking openly about how her background contributed to her violent crime. Paula met LaShawn Davidson soon after her release and he quickly proposed, which made Paula feel like she might get a happy ending after all. Yet, it was clear that one thing had not changed during all the years Paula was away, Gloria's treatment of her. Paula was willing to set aside the disappointment of her mother, never visiting her in prison. Despite everything, Paula still wanted a relationship with her mother. On Mother's Day of 2014, she wanted to accompany her mother to church. Gloria told her she would need to get her pastor's approval since Paula was a convicted felon. The response broke Paula's heart and her spirit. Crucial formative years spent behind bars, her mother's rejection, and society's tendency to pigeonhole ex-cons all took a great toll on Paula, with all of it coming to a head on May 26th of 2015. Roughly two years after being released, Paula Cooper was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. She was found resting under a tree in a park on the north side of Gary. Beside her body, she left four letters addressed to her sister, Monica Foster, her fiance, and her mother. The Baltimore Sun quoted an excerpt of the letter to Paula's mother, which read, you didn't care about me. You cut me off. You judged me. You didn't want me at your church. Maybe Paula's desire for her mother's love precipitated the events that prompted her to kill Ruth Pelkey, or maybe a town's racial trauma produced conditions that left Paula as a young teenager feeling like there was no other path. One can never say what exactly led Paula to kill Ruth Pelkey. Paula was haunted by the demons of her past, by the horrible decisions she made the fateful afternoon that Ruth Pelkey lost her life. In the end, Paula realized that her mother could never provide the love she so desperately needed, and it destroyed her. This case is not easy to analyze. The perpetrator's actions were horrendous and took the life of an innocent person. When that perpetrator is still a child, and one who endured horrific abuse, what should be done to punish a perpetrator under these circumstances? How far should that punishment go? And what factors should or should not be taken into consideration? One can't help but wonder what punishment Ruth Pelkey, the victim, would want in this case. Ruth was a kind and nurturing soul who, even as she was dying, recited scripture and warned the girls they would regret their actions. In Paula Cooper's case, she may have been right. This monumental case continues to receive attention. In March of 2023, Alex Marr released the book, 
70 times 7, a true story of murder and mercy. According to an excerpt, the author uses the case to reflect upon what radical acts of empathy anyone might be capable of. Your help is needed with a missing persons case. Andrea N. Robinson has been missing from Hamburg, New York since May 17th of 1996, when she was 29 years old. The petite Caucasian woman with brown hair is described as being five foot four inches tall and 110 pounds and would be around 56 years old today. Andrea was last seen by her husband at her Hamburg residence the morning she disappeared. She was due to pick up their child at school that afternoon, but a friend was called after Andrea's car broke down. The friend picked up Andrea's child but never heard from Andrea again. Andrea's vehicle was found abandoned later that day at the Rainbow Bridge parking ramp, and some of her personal belongings were mysteriously found on a picnic table at a Dufferin Island Park in Ontario, Canada. Anyone with information about Andrea Robinson's disappearance should contact the Village of Hamburg Police Department at 716-648-5111. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Make sure you're following me on Instagram and TikTok at Jamie on Air. That's J-A-M-I on Air on Instagram and TikTok. On social media, I recap a lot of true crime cases and I take you behind the scenes at my recording studio. So give me a follow at Jamie on Air. If you'd rather listen to Murderish with no interruptions, you can do so by signing up for Murderish Behind the Mic on Patreon. To sign up for Murderish Behind the Mic, visit Murderish.com or just go to patreon.com and search for Murderish there. If you need more podcasts to listen to, I host another true crime podcast called Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast follows my investigation of a woman I met a few years ago, a woman who turned out to be a prolific scam artist. I also recently launched a brand new podcast called Trend Vetters. If you wanna see what that show is all about, there's a trailer you can listen to now and a couple of episodes. Just search for Trend Vetters in any podcast app. If you enjoy Murderish, consider leaving a positive rating and review in any podcast app. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.